Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Alan Reject. He's the CEO of OpGen, O-P-G-E-N. And we're going to talk about uh, optimizing genomic testing for antibiotic resistance, which is important because, unfortunately, antibiotic resistance is, has been on the rise. And uh, if you're sick in a certain way and antibiotics can't help you because the uh, bacteria affecting you are resistant, then, then what do you do? So this will probably be a very important issue. So, Oliver, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, and I guess they call that what, AMR, antimicrobial uh, resistance or resistant organisms. Is that what they call antibiotic resistance? Indeed, indeed. And what I what I call it or what I look at it, it's sort of the pandemic underlying the COVID-19 pandemic because we have uh, about 700,000 people globally dying of antimicrobial resistant infections every year. Last year, this year, and it'll be the same next year. So we really got to do something about it. Um, currently gets a bit drowned out by the whole COVID-19 story, but uh, clearly yeah. is a, an issue affecting all of us globally. Are there, um, amongst the organisms that are out there, uh, are there particular ones that are more resistant than others? And if so, what, what kind of conditions are now more dangerous? Because um, there's a lot of, of uh, resistant microbes out there. Well, so first off, I mean, there's literally hundreds, thousands of different bacteria, uh, and uh, all of them, you know, theoretically can get resistant. And one of the things we've seen happen over the last, let's call it uh, 20, 30 years, so this is not a new phenomenon, um, is that we have been using antibiotics more and more aggressively as uh, broad spectrum antibiotics. And as the name suggests, they work broadly against a lot of bugs, but aren't particularly targeted. And that way, it's evolution in, uh, you know, in uh, a rapid overdrive. Bugs, bacteria just try to survive. And the ones that uh, somehow by a genetic mutation, for example, acquire resistance will, will survive and will multiply and will thrive. And so the thing that has happened here over the last uh, 20 plus years is that not only have more and more bugs become resistant, but it happens ever faster. Um, so while in the past it might have taken, you know, 10, 15 years or longer uh, for bacteria to get resistant against a new antibiotic, we've seen um, the, the, the very few new antibiotics that have come onto the market here in recent years getting uh, you know, resistance response within three to five years. Um, and the rates uh, of what's the percentage of resistant bugs has also been steadily increasing. So for some bugs, um, you know, we've seen rates that are in the 30, 40% range. 10, 15 years ago, it was all about uh, MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus. Um, Today, this is really about gram-negative bacteria rather than Staph aureus, which is gram-positive. And these are the so-called hospital superbugs. And we've seen bacteria in hospitals where literally no single antibiotic worked anymore. And there are projections out there that if we continue indiscriminately using broad-spectrum antibiotics, then by the year 2050, which seems far off, but it's only 30 years, we may have up to 10 million people a year die from these AMR 
antimicrobial resistant bacteria globally, which would be more than from cancer and cardiovascular disease combined. When does uh, AMR arise? Is it um, a patient sick, you know, they're given antibiotics and then um, it's working and then it stops working after a day or two and that's when the resistance comes or is it that, you know, they're treated and just the antibiotics don't work at all and the resistance is already in play? All of these scenarios exist. So you have patients come to a hospital already with a resistant bug uh, and it, you know, may simply no longer respond to certain antibiotics. And then you work through a, an algorithm. And the challenge today is that it takes several days um, for the diagnosis from the microbiology lab to come back and tell the doctor exactly which bug it is and what the resistance profile is. So that's the challenge. In the absence of knowing what you're facing, they tend to give broad spectrum antibiotics. But about half of the cases of patients um, for example, in pneumonia, there's about a million patients each year that get hospitalized with pneumonia. Um, half of them come to hospital with pneumonia as a primary disease. The other half are patients that are being hospitalized for entirely unrelated diseases. It could be cardiovascular patients, cancer patients, transplant patients, whatever. And they ultimately acquire the infection in the hospital. And those are often the, the, the real superbugs because you know hospitals are hotbeds for breeding these uh, multi-drug resistant antibiotics, um, uh, antibiotic strains of bacteria. And so a patient whose immune system is already um, challenged or compromised due to an underlying different condition um, may then acquire this bug in a hospital and, uh, and be seriously, uh, seriously ill or even die. We have you know significant number of patients uh, here in the United States, but really also in, in all major economies globally dying of these AMR infections every year. So you can either get it in a hospital, you can bring it with you, and sometimes you have a bug that's still um, susceptible. But then, when when treated with antibiotics, um, you know they may they may kill some of them, some of the bacteria acquire resistance. You may see patterns where symptoms um, improve, fever comes down. Three days later, the patient turns for the worse, and in the end, again may die because some of these bugs um, have then. Uh, you know, found a way to survive the antibiotic and acquire a resistance and ultimately kill the patient. Um, why does the testing take so long? What is What, what kind of testing is done? And I've heard that, uh, you know, omics is uh, really, I mean, there's next generation sequencing and things like that that have really improved. But um, why does testing take so long? Or what, what's being tested to ascertain what's affecting a patient? Sure. I mean, if you look at the standard of care in all our hospitals these days, we're still doing what we have been doing for 130 years. Essentially, you take a sample from a patient, you put it on a little Petri dish with a culture medium, you incubate it for a couple of days, uh, you look at the bugs that are growing on the plate, you then put antibiotics on them, and there's instruments doing it, so it's being automated. Uh, there's, you know, you put antibiotics, and if you then see the bugs no longer grow, you know that they're still susceptible to the antibiotic. If they continue to grow, you know they're already resistant. But fundamentally, it's effectively having to culture and grow the bacteria and then treat them with antibiotics. And that just takes, you know, 24, 48 hours in the best of cases. In some instances, for example, in uh, orthopedic joint infections, if you've had a hip or knee replacement, you may have to culture for 10 to 14 days. And at the end, half of your cultures come back negative. But you already alluded to, there are already today rapid tests and Optin, as well as many others, have been developing these, uh, you know, genomics or omics-based solutions. So we have rapid... Um, uh, PCR-based tests where you take a patient sample, 
It's literally two minutes hands-on time, and then it's a fully automated. You drop the sample in, walk away, and within four or five hours, you get a result looking at dozens of different pathogens as well as antimicrobial resistant markers. So you really get the full picture within you know, just a few hours, allowing the doctor to make adjustments. Um, you've also mentioned next-gen sequencing. So while PCR tests basically allow you to look at anywhere from you know, either a handful of bugs to maybe 50 or 100 and maybe a, a few dozen resistance markers, if you do next-generation sequencing, which still takes longer, still probably takes at least a day or two today, but you can look at thousands of uh, features and, um, and resistance markers. So that may, as, as um, the, the time to result um, comes down and it becomes more and more rapid and also the costs come down for next-gen sequencing, uh, we're probably gonna see that as the, the next level of, of evolution. But we also have PCR-based testing. We have a platform under development that will get those results within literally uh, 45, 60 minutes um, on some of the key bugs. And, and that really allows doctors to reassess their original decision to treat the patient with broad spectrum antibiotics. We've just seen a publication from Northwestern Hospital in Chicago and uh, Beaumont in Michigan, where they'd looked at over 600 patients and their chart reviews. And they concluded that two thirds of all of these patients were being overtreated with broad spectrum antibiotics. Another 10% were being undertreated and needed some specific antibiotic to be added. In another almost 8% of cases, antibiotics should have been changed. And in yet another 3%, new antibiotic course should have been started. If you add this all up, what this means, and this again, these are two top tier United States hospitals, more than 600 patients, 87% of patients were being inadequately treated with broad spectrum antibiotics, either over or undertreated. That's a pretty scary perspective. That's crazy. So um, the antibiotics themselves, from what I've heard and talking to various you know people, is that um, there's not a lot of financial incentive that would be worth it to do you know clinical trials of, of billions of dollars because it's not a, a medication someone takes for life. So is that uh, is that what you see? Is that dampening the creation of new antibiotics? That's that's a major problem, and you you nailed it. I mean, over the last twenty plus years. Most big pharmaceutical companies have gotten out of the development of antibiotics for one simple reason. If you have an infectious disease, you get an antibiotic, which historically these antibiotics tend to have been relatively cheap, you know, $100, maybe a few hundred dollars. And then the patient gets the drug for 10 days, three weeks on the outside, and one of two things happen. Either they're on the way to recovery and back home, or they're dead. If you're a cancer patient, or a diabetes patient, or a rheumatoid arthritis patient, you get your drugs for the rest of your life, over years and sometimes decades. And some of these drugs, especially cancer drugs, you're talking about $100,000 plus per patient per year. Now, if you consider you're a pharmaceutical company or a biotechnology company developing a new antibiotic, it's just as risky, takes just as long, is just as costly, yet your return on investment is a fraction of what it would be in some of these other disease states. So very rationally, I guess, from an economic standpoint, Big Pharma has gotten out of antibiotic development, which has led to a really a scarcity of new drugs. Biotech, small biotech companies have picked that up. And then you look at some of the cases where small biotech companies are in fact successful in developing a new antibiotic. Acaogen is a great case. Now they took the drug through phase three, uh, great data. They get approval from the FDA. They launch it. And within a year, they go bankrupt. Why? Well, 
if you find a novel antibiotic, the last thing you want is for that antibiotic to be prescribed and used because it's likely a reserve antibiotic, which should only be used in those few cases where nothing works anymore. But economically, again, it's a bit like if you're selling sprinkler systems, if you could only sell a sprinkler system when there was a fire, you'd be out of business. So there's been a lot of political debate, both here in the United States, but also internationally, how do we create economic incentives? There's been debate about, you know, billion dollar uh, bonuses or, 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 you know, kind of lump sum payments for anyone developing a new antibiotic and bringing it to market so that it becomes available to clinicians um, as a reserve. But, but, you know, again, if you, if you then basically force folks not to use it, keep it in the shelves, um, which is good practice from a medical perspective, economically, you'll drive uh, industry out of this. So you may even make an argument that either government or even better, um, you know, supranational global non-governmental organizations really need to step in and step up and uh, create these financial incentives for new antibiotics. But given that we're in this situation where there are very few, if any, new antibiotics, the only real option we have today to keep the existing antibiotics effective for as long as possible is rapid diagnostics. And that's really where Optin is focusing and where a lot of our, our peers in the industry are focusing on. Yeah, so tell me, what, what, is, what, what does rapid diagnostics mean? What's involved? Well, it's really a combination of, uh, of instruments that are easy to use. And really, the idea is, uh, you know, give me a system that a, uh, an operator, a tired nurse could operate at three in the morning on the graveyard shift without thinking much, literally, um, you know, take a sample, drop it in, walk away, forget about it, and then see the result here in, uh, in a matter of, uh, you know, an hour or a couple of hours. Um, these platforms are available increasingly. There's a lot of uh, good examples where uh, over, the, over recent years, whether it's for uh, blood cultures and bloodstream infections, for um, uh, upper respiratory viral infections or gastrointestinal tract infections, there, there are good products. Um, at Option, uh, we have developed um, one of only two FDA cleared products in pneumonia in uh, lower respiratory tract infections. We also have one of the uh, uh, the only uh, programs in development for complicated urinary tract infection, as well as orthopedic joint infections. So there's still ways to go. Um, you know, I've been in molecular diagnostics for 23 years. 20 years ago in oncology, it was the same thing. Pathologists would say to you, you know, look, if I can't see it through my microscope, it ain't there. We're, we're having a, you know, a similar debate with microbiologists and infectious disease. We're probably running at least a decade behind oncology. But in my view, there's no doubt that in the next, you know, few years, we'll see uh, a wholesale shift to rapid molecular testing, and whether it's PCR testing or ultimately next-generation sequencing, and the associated bioinformatics, sort of the smart software tools and algorithms that interpret the data and give clinicians the guidance to say, you know, use this drug or don't use that drug um, because of the, the profile of the, the particular bacteria as well as it, uh, their resistance. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, in addition to sequencing, again, what other kinds of technology or rapid diagnostics will be brought to bear? What, what else are you guys working on? Like, give me a little bit of detail. So we have a number of platforms. So we have our uh, Univero platform, sort of the, the workhorse on the PCR side. This is a cartridge-based system. What that means is basically you have a one-time use disposable cartridge where you drop in a sample, you can walk away, and everything that would normally happen in a classical laboratory environment with a technician pipetting and instruments that is all happening inside, you know, a little plastic cartridge fully automatically. Um, 
we, uh, we do have certain bioinformatics tools available today already. Um, Optgen has deployed together with the New York State Department of Health made collaboration at uh, multiple sites in New York State, amongst others, the Wadsworth Center up in Albany, as well as three major uh, hospital healthcare centers in New York City, what's called the uh, um, Acuitas Lighthouse. The Lighthouse is a suite of software tools that allows tracing and then tracking the movement of antimicrobial resistant features. So different resistance markers. If you see them popping up in a, in a patient sample in one hospital, and a week later, you start seeing them popping up uh, elsewhere in the city or in the state. You may ask, and this happens very frequently, patients being moved for one reason or another from one facility to another one, that these superbugs get spread. They get moved around with the patients. And so, you know, that is a, a, a smart way of swiftly identifying potential outbreaks. And then when you, when you can trace and track them, kind of contain them and mitigate them. Very much like we're seeing today with COVID. Uh, COVID-19, you know, where again, you have these small local or regional outbreaks, if you're able to rapidly detect them, you're hopefully able to then quarantine and, and contain uh, the further spread. And that's really the same idea. So everything we're seeing happening here in, uh, you know, in, in overdrive warp speed um, in COVID-19, the same thing is happening with bacterial infections, just doesn't get as much publicity. It's just as deadly, just as lethal. Um, takes longer, a bit more like climate change, um, but you know that's really where we need to address it. And the value of rapid diagnostics, and really globally, the industry has come together on you know dozens of platforms, um, different instruments, different uh, test kit formats, small instruments that deliver results in 10, 15 minutes, huge instruments that can do tens of thousands of tests in a in a fully automated fashion. Um, really phenomenal, uh, phenomenal job demonstrating to, I guess, politics and society at large, the true value of rapid diagnostics. That's, that's the one thing. I mean, diagnostics has historically been sort of the poor, poor stepchild in the healthcare industry, while drugs are often reimbursed and paid for at you know, perceived value. Um, as I said, a cancer drug can easily run more than $100,000 per patient per year. A lot of diagnostic testing is fairly cheap, you know, a couple of tens of dollars, maybe, maybe you know, $100 or $200. Um, but, you know, again, in order to create the economic incentives for the diagnostics industry to keep, keep stepping up their game and delivering these rapid solutions, we also need to make sure that there is adequate reimbursement, um, you know, for, for the ability to, to deliver novel technologies to rapidly identify these AMR um, superbugs. So uh, if a true five-minute PCR test that's reliable, actually, for COVID gets developed, Hopefully, you can look at that and uh, adopt that to what you guys are doing, right? And sure. vice versa, what you're doing may reflect in the faster COVID tests if you know if it works. We we even have, I mean, Optgen as a, as a group, we actually have our own um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, PCR test. Now it's not a five minute test; it takes about an hour, which is a lot faster than a lot of the early PCR tests for COVID, which came out in March and April. That usually had somewhere between two and a half and three hours time to result. So it's faster, it's cheaper. Usually you end up with a trade-off. So the existing tests that do deliver results in you know, 10, 15 minutes tend to be less sensitive, which means they overlook a couple of cases. There's talk right now about novel um, uh, actual disease antigen tests coming to market here, uh, potentially even this month um, through some of the large diagnostic players that again promise the ability to deliver, deliver data within uh, 10, 12 minutes, which is great. 
Um, so, but you always have that trade-off. The faster you are, usually you leave some performance um, characteristics on the table. Um, and conversely, if you allow your technology to do what it's supposed to do, um, and PCR being a prime example, with every cycle of your PCR, you basically duplicate your, your, your analyte and you get your result better. Um, you know, if you only run it for a couple of minutes, it may work for a single, it may work for a single um, virus such as SARS-CoV-2. It will not likely work for a panel when you don't know what you're facing in these bacterial infections. You really need to test for 30, 40 different uh, bugs and, and uh, antimicrobial resistant uh, markers. And not all of them are going to be detectable in, in a few minutes. So again, you, you need to somehow compromise that. But a lot of smart technology out there. Um, and it's getting adoption uh, here in SARS-CoV-2, and certainly my sincere hope is we'll see that uh, next great push in the uh, in the pandemic of antimicrobial resistant superbugs. Well, is there a Pareto? You know, even if it changes, but are there a few uh, certain strains of microbes? Or like you said, it used to be all about MRSA. Well, who are the new MRSAs? You know, I would guess there's probably a few that yep. probably cause a, la- a vast majority of these uh, you know AMR deaths. There are, there are, sure. I mean, you, you have, uh, you know, Pseudomonas infection or Acinetobacter infection, Carbapenem resistant Enterobacteriaceae. Uh, those are some of the really ugly gram negative um, superbugs that people are scared of. And then that, and that may cover, you know, ultimately with probably two handful of bugs, you're probably covering 80%. Then you have got a long tail of other things. I mean, you know, one of the one of the often overlooked bugs is not a bacteria, it's in fact a fungus in pneumonia. It's pneumocystis. Happens um, to be something that occurs frequently in immunocompromised patients. Historically, people have thought about, well, if I've got an HIV patient, maybe I think about a fungal infection. But it turns out that there's a lot, uh, a lot more cases um, in COPD patients and patients that are otherwise immunocompromised. And it's often underdiagnosed because you can't grow this thing on a on a plate uh, in classical culture. So again, it's always the question. You're right. You know, you can probably cover the, the majority of things in uh, you know, let's call it an hour um, with a small panel. But um, you know, when you really look at intensive care unit patients, where a single day on an ICU can easily run several thousand dollars, and the mortality rates are in the double digits. Um, so therefore, really covering the breadth and the waterfront of all these different ugly superbugs is is important. And if you look at resistance mechanisms, even if you only have a handful of bugs, and you can make the case in urinary tract infection, probably there's only a handful that are really 80, 90% of the bugs. But then you look at the resistance markers, and again, this is where Option has a unique capabilities with a panel of up to 47 different genomic antimicrobial resistance markers, because there is a plethora of these different resistance markers. And these beasts are innovative. I mean, it's evolution. Again, they try to acquire whatever gene they can to, to become resistant and survive. And so, you know, covering a handful of bugs is one thing, but really covering the waterfront of AMR means you likely have to look at at least several dozen, potentially, if you look at NGS, hundreds or even thousands of features. Well, the when a, when a, a micro becomes resistant, you know, I've heard of efflux pumps, um, yeah. I'm not, I would guess again. There's probably a handful of strategies, even though they may be, you know, coded by different uh, constituents, different molecules. You know, an efflux pump maybe can be coded by, uh, I don't know, this set of molecules, and you could also make an efflux pump out of that set of molecules. So I would guess again, there's probably a few mechanisms that are repeated over and over and over to be that constitute AMR. So 
Like, what are uh, those? Fortunately, well, there are certainly, certainly, certain, I mean, mechanisms with either, you know, the efflux pumps, certain cell surface, um, you know, different mechanisms that uh, bacteria have evolved. But there are an, an extraordinary amount of genetic uh, variants that can cause similar pathways for acquiring resistance. So one of the things that we've actually done over the last several years is create what we believe to be one of the largest and broadest databases of novel proprietary genetic markers for antimicrobial resistance. Now this, again, Option is the combination of two companies, of Option and Curatus. We've brought this together. Um, Option had historically developed its Lighthouse database based on the Merck pharmaceutical strain collection. And then uh, Curatus, with its RS genetic subsidiary, had acquired um, a database from Siemens uh, back in 2016 based on the Siemens strain collection. We brought those two together. Today, we have over 55,000 um, isolates, uh, you know, bacterial strains that we have uh, next generation sequenced. But not only that, we've not only deep sequenced all of these 55,000 bugs, we've actually phenotypically tested them against over 100 different antibiotics. And if you look at the sheer number of, you know, individual bug, individual resistance marker combinations, we've recently published a study together with the Mayo Clinic uh, here in the United States. And we're currently working on some projects together with Johns Hopkins, demonstrating where you have next-gen sequencing data, you may end up having to look at literally hundreds of features to get to prediction accuracies that the United States FDA would deem to be appropriate. Now, you can, again, 80-20 is sort of a nice, you could do that in, in the business world. If you're talking about AMR, that is an error rate that is not acceptable. If you want prediction accuracies in the you know, 98, 99% plus range, you'll need to look at hundreds of features. And again, technologically, that would probably surpass the capabilities of PCR on any platform. It's really then going to boil down to making next-gen sequencing accessible uh, fast and cheap enough, and then have the smart bioinformatic algorithms so that anybody anywhere in the world who runs a next-gen sequencing um, data generation on a sample can upload that data into the cloud and have some artificial intelligence-powered prediction algorithms give them the intelligence on here's what you're facing, here's what you should be doing, and thinking about in terms of your therapeutic choice. When, when you talk about, I, I just don't know, I, and I apologize for asking maybe a question that's obvious, but when you say hundreds of features, like what, what constitutes a feature and when a bacteria is resistant you know, to an antibiotic, is it usually one thing about it that comprises all the resistance or does it have to um, you know, tackle the antibiotic in multiple ways? And that's what the features come from. Uh, no, well, so fe feature really, um, uh, to me, is a, you know a genetic mutation. One, you know, one mutation, um, one genetic variant. Um, and again, you can have multiple genetic variants, individual mutations that taken together. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, in the case of MRSA, it's a single one, right? You have, you know, you have Staph aureus as a bug, and you have the methicillin resistance in the encoded in the MECA gene. One gene, one resistance, fabulous. That's the easy ones, but you have um, certain resistance mechanisms. And if you think about, you know, carbapenem resistance or third generation cephalosporin resistance, et cetera, you look at, you know, sometimes the need to take 20, 30, 40, or even a hundred different genetic mutations or variations that if taken together actually lead phenotypically lead to the resistance. And again, whether that's then, you know, your efflux pump or whatever mechanism uh, it may be, 
um, is often not monofactorial, not just one genetic mutation, um, but really many, many taken together. Um, so in order to create, let's say again, like an efflux pump, uh, would one change in, in, you know, one base pair of, uh, of a genetic sequence do it, or does it require dozens or hundreds? I, and I'll, I'll just be, I mean, I'm not a scientist by training, so I'll just defer to the powers that be. But uh, I, certainly if you look at even some of the more common resistance mechanisms, they're not monofactorial. It's not one gene, one resistance. You literally have to look at a very broad panel. And again, that's why Option has developed the AMR gene panel on isolates, which again has 47 genetic resistance markers. And we've published data showing that with that, you can get probably in the 90 to 93% prediction accuracy range. But again, recent data would suggest that in order to get to 98, 99% prediction accuracy, and the FDA will typically demand less than one, one and a half percent of what they call um, major errors um, for it to be clinically um, you know, acceptable from a risk profile, you, 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 you know, even, even several dozen markers aren't sufficient. So, okay. So, Let's say, I don't know, there's a sequence of base pairs, one to 10,000. And, mm-hmm. you know, in order for this bacteria, again, let's say to code an efflux pump, like, you know, number three, seven, 21, 46, 84, blah, 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 et cetera, would all be different. So maybe is that why you're saying that, you know, hundreds of features would need to be analyzed in order to tell, okay, that means that it's going to do this, like most likely. Well, exactly. Plus, you have the situation that a lot of these genetic variations are not specific to any one species of bacteria or let alone any specific family of bacteria. So, I mean, again, if you look at um, pneumonia where you have 20 different pathogens, different bacteria that taken together probably cause 90% or more of all pneumonia cases. But across these 20 bugs, you know, you again have, you know, you may have 10, 15 resistance markers that cover, you know, some key resistance themes. But if you really want to address 99% 99% of them, you'd likely, again, have to do next-gen sequencing and look at the combination of individual pathogens with a whole host of resistance mechanisms. Um, and again, it's not a one-to-one correlation. MRSA is really the exception rather than the rule. You have a clear genetic linkage between the MECA gene and Staph aureus. You do not have that, with very few exceptions, in most of the bacteria. And I guess, too, um, probably different combinations of mutations could lead to the same or similar, you know, uh, physical attribute. You know, again, I just keep referring back to an efflux yep. pump. So, correct. Okay, now, now I understand. It makes a lot more sense why it's it's so complicated. I appreciate you explaining. Sure. Hmm. Um, are there any, uh, you know, at, at, at Opgen, do you have any pictures of, of various microbes up on the wall, like the FBI would have? You know, your most wanted. We actually do. We actually do. So, uh, it's it's. Um, well, it kind of, uh, you know, I'm not going to say personalizes it, but um, it's one of those things that's quite humbling. You know, you think about it. If we go back 25 years, 30 years, um, it was really human hubris. Um, when when we had a novel generation of antibiotics in the third generation cephalosporins, it was one of those moments where it was kind of, we won, they lost. Well, little did we know, a few years later, we ended up getting resistance and, um, you know, really Bacteria have been around since the beginning of the planet and the universe, and frankly, they'll likely be here way after human humankind has ceased to exist. So that is quite a humbling thought, and uh, there's 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 uh, so many more of them than uh, than there is of uh, any other animal or human being on this planet. 
they'll always find a way to evolve. And uh, if we throw antibiotics at them or whatever, they'll figure out a way. And if it's just one in a million, that one will then survive and multiply and it starts all over again. So that's a race that we can never terminally win. But it's a bit like, again, it's a bit, that's why I liken it to climate change. You've got to accept that this is not something that has a simple fix. And whatever fix you find, if you deploy this locally or even nationally, is going to be irrelevant in addressing the global problem because outside of COVID times, we all travel, you know, we travel globally, we move these bugs around the planet. Um, and so, you know, even if we did something here in the US, unless it's also done in Europe, in Asia, and other parts of the world, you know, it's, it's not going to be sufficient. So this is really something that truly requires a global approach, not by any single government, um, but really by, you know, mankind at large. And we've shown, I mean, we've shown our ability to come together during COVID. We're also showing it in terms of climate change, at least, uh, you know, there's been wholesale change here. Uh, if you look at electronic mobility, we'll need to have a similar effort here to fight AMR in the, in the years and frankly, in the decades to come. Um, any other, uh, I mean, on the horizon, are there any technologies that uh, you think perhaps in the next few years will be uh, you know, instrumental in help pushing you along faster or for you know, science figuring out AMR faster? Well, I remember you know, t- more than 20 years ago when I had started uh, my first cancer diagnostics company, I remember Craig Vanner getting on stage and basically telling the world how he was going to beat everybody talking about the human genome sequencing and you know, the public project was just on the way. And we all know how that ended. Um, so I think we've seen things happen so fast and there's spectacular technology. Um, it's got to be a combination of miniaturization um, and automation on the one hand, but it's really going to come with artificial intelligence power, data analytics and, and, and software. And it's got to be reduced to practice in something that's so simple um, that really it can be deployed and used anywhere. Um, we're not quite there yet um, when it comes to miniaturization, but we're seeing some some of the things you know now are literally the size of a of a USB stick um, that you can put in a in a little portable instrument and multiple of them. And once we get um, you know the cost of next gen sequencing, it used to be billions of dollars for the human genome, then millions, then hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, thousands. We're now down to a level where you can actually get bacterial whole genome sequencing done, you know, somewhere in the hundred to three hundred dollar ballpark. You, you kind of pro, you know project that out for another couple of years. We're probably going to have something that's small enough, fast enough. I mean, it still takes about twenty four hours, sometimes more. This can be brought down to, again, like PCR today, an hour, two hour, three four, and the cost can come down to a couple of tens of dollars. Um, and the data analytics comes together, and, and it's, it's all of the ingredients are there. Um, and again, that's why, why it's exciting to work in this space, because we're not going to run out of the challenges. The bugs will continue to evolve. Uh, infections will continue to be on the rise. Um, and, and again, uh, finding creative solutions, combining technologies. And again, Optin itself, we did not invent new technology per se. We've been all about combining existing technologies in a novel and creative fashion, do some smart engineering to miniaturize things and then combine it and couple it with a bioinformatics to you know, create knowledge and insight from the data. Well, very good. Oliver, what's the best way for people to find out more about Opgen and keep tabs on it? Well, first off, I mean, we obviously have a, a website at www.opgen.com. 
Uh, we're also active on uh, social media, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, you follow us there. Um, you know, anybody who's following uh, the AMR story uh, will, you know, at some point sooner rather than later, probably stumble across uh, Option as well as, you know, many of our peers um, in the industry. And again, this is a fight that we all need to join in um, as industry, as society, as uh, as politics. And if we put all our creative minds to it, I know we can win this. Um, but again, we got to be smart about it. And so really looking for anybody who wants to find out more um, across our website. Folks will be able to interact with us and find us and happy to answer any questions. Okay. Oliver, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.